0: The theme this morning is following and it's a verse that we know very well, in fact, we may know it so well that we miss the implications of what this verse is doing and saying. So this morning, we've all arrived at the church and by accident or design, you have followed somebody here or somebody on part of your journey. You've done some following and by definition and default, somebody was following you as well. This morning, as I cycled into work, I, as to church, I, well, it is work as well, I suppose, isn't it? It's not just Sundays, eh? Let's have none of those jokes around here. Um, I followed a cyclist to the church. Yesterday, on the church Instagram account, somebody followed us. Hallelujah. That makes two. No, it doesn't. Uh, once, a few years ago, I was giving a talk about astrophysics to five-year-olds, and I kept saying to them, do you follow me? And they didn't. The first time I heard the fine tuning argument for the existence of God, I wasn't sure if I followed it. When I went to the pyramids in 2019 to Egypt, to teach with my youngest son, a man, an Egyptian guy in the pyramids complex tried to get us off the beaten track to to see some of the artifacts. He tried to get us to follow him and I felt uncomfortable with that even if I did know a little Arabic to tell him what I thought. What I'm trying to say here is that following takes many, many aspects. We can follow Christ spiritually, emotionally, logically, intellectually, physically, heroically, willfully, objectively and subjectively, but we can never follow Christ privately. Amen? This culture, a secular culture, will tell you to privatise your faith. This is not a private faith. It is to be proclaimed, even to the detriment of your own health or life. It is to be shouted from the rooftops and the hilltops and the treetops It is not private. So when Jesus was walking along by the Sea of Galilee, he said to the disciples, follow. Well, they weren't disciples yet. Then they were just ordinary guys fishing. He said, follow me. What was going on? What did they hear? What did they expect? What did they anticipate in the first century? Because a lot more than just physically following this young enigmatic rabbi was going on. A lot more. A lot more. They weren't promised a destination. Follow me to, let's go. I promise that we'll do this. He just said, follow me. There was no... Well, in fact, there was a promise, wasn't there? There was. He, Jesus tied it to their, to their jobs that they were doing. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, fishers of people. I will make you catch people. In fact, the verse says, and I want to pick up this in a week or so, follow me and I will make you become becoming. Not one of us here is the finished article. Not one of us here thinks and acts and speaks like Jesus. Not one of us here has the mind of Christ in all of its fullness and capacity because we're all becoming. We're all in process. We're redeemed and being redeemed. We're sanctified and being sanctified. Jesus is calling us all the time to follow me he says. So Jesus had come into the world, the the, the God who became a man and now Jesus was in the world but now he'd entered the world of fishing by the Sea of Galilee. He'd entered their world, the world that they knew very well. And Jesus wasn't a fisherman, he was a carpenter. He was a man who worked on the land. He was passing along the Sea of Galilee. Andrew and Simon were working, they were casting their nets, they were fishing, they were working hard and what Jesus was doing was calling them away from this, not to diminish their work but to elevate their work, to take their work and so to magnify it, to glorify it for the sake of the kingdom of God and he does it like this. When we are hungry, we eat, but that's a sign for our hunger for God. When we are thirsty, next time you're thirsty, it is a sign in the way God has made us to be thirsty for him. And when we work, do we work for the glory of God? When we fish, do we fish for the glory of God? Whatever it is we do, how do you frame what you do? In the context of who God is. The God that Anne so beautifully uh, uh, unpacked for us at our intercessions. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat to satisfy your hunger, whether you drink to satisfy your thirst, whatever you do, is there anything left out of this? Eating, drinking... And whatever else. (laughs) It's everything. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's a well known verse and cited often from 1 Corinthians 10. But how do we do that? How do we do this? By being you in the long, slow process of walking with Christ. It's called sanctification, the becoming part of our journey, the long, slow process. And as I was preparing this, thinking of that long, slow work, I was thinking of the thought that came to me was this book. Some of you would have read it by Brother Lawrence in the 17th century. It's a collection of really some notes and some meetings that he had with people. And it's called The Practice of the Presence of God. He was a Carmelite monk. Do you know what his responsibility was? gardening and cooking. And he wrote, how do I experience God while I'm doing this? It is a magnificent, you can see how big the print is, look, it's not a big book, but it is really, it's a spiritual masterpiece. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I want to share a couple of things that he said, just by way of helping us understand what he's talking about. He says, Our sanctification did not depend upon changing our works, but in doing that for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. And then he said, and we ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards the greatness of the work, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed the love with which it is performed, when it is viewed in that light, you do it for the glory of God. And then he says uh, that our only business is really to love and to delight ourselves in God. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you love and delight yourselves in God? And if you do, how do you do it? Share it with other people. Share it with me. I'd, I'd love to know. I'm still learning. I don't know, really. How do you delight in God? How do you do that when prayer is so difficult, when regular church attendance with the believers is so challenging sometimes? How do we delight ourselves in this God? Well, this little booklet will help us On that journey, it's amazing. The practice of the presence of God and this takes time, it takes practice, it takes failing and falling and it takes getting up again, it takes grace, it takes mercy. But one of the key things that we must do is also named in the passage that was read out. When Jesus said, follow me, what did the fishermen, the disciples do? Yes. They laid down their nets. This is necessary when you come to Christ. You lay it down, you repent, you turn around, you reject sin and idolatry and evil and wickedness and you say yes to Christ, you lay down your nets, whatever the nets, whatever is specific to you, you lay it down. You do that at the start and every day since. You lay down your nets again and again and again in humble faith that seeks to pursue the glory of God in your life and you can't do it on your own, by the way. You need the Holy Spirit, of course. Because the disciples cannot follow Christ while carrying their nets. We cannot follow Christ while holding on to the things that bind us or separate us from him. We cannot do it. Therefore, church, what are your nets? What are the things that you're carrying that are hindering you in your walk with Christ? Because whatever it is, it needs ruthless surgery. Bob's phrase as a surgeon, if in doubt, cut it out. This is true in Christian faith. If it's a hindrance, it needs to go. It must go. You cannot carry nets and follow Christ. They must be laid down. They are required to be laid down. I want to show three examples from from Mark's Gospel what picking up your nets again might look like but I want to use the example of the disciples and I want you to see what it looks like when they pick up their nets again, when they don't understand what it means to follow Christ and Jesus is teaching them, he's forming them, he's shaping them to be the people that will turn the world upside down and are still turning the world upside down, praise God. And they were just ordinary people like you and me. We look through these Gospel accounts, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and we see where the disciples pick up their nets. We see their worldly unsanctified ways of thinking and being in the world. So Mark 4.38, Jesus is on the boat, there's a windstorm and a storm that arises and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep on the cushion. The Bible says, a great windstorm arose and Jesus was asleep at the stern and the disciples pick up their nets and say, don't you care that we are perishing? That's an example of them picking up their nets. Unbelief, mistrust, can't quite see, don't know who he is, what's really going on? We're in danger. So we pick up our nets and we ask the usual questions. Don't you care that we are about to perish? Mark 6.37, Jesus is faced with thousands of hungry people. (laughs) You know what happens. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Why? Because he's the true food that we need. Man does not live on bread alone. Amen. But what do the disciples do? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. But the disciples don't know how to do this because they're still thinking in worldly ways I've mean, got some sympathy, right? But they pick up their nets again and they say, where will we buy bread for this many people? And then the final one, there's loads, I mean, you could have it in every chapter, the disciples are picking up their. In fact, we could call the gospels, how not to pick up your nets. Mark 16 verse 12, Jesus has talked with two disciples after his resurrection and he's explained to them the reality of what's just taken place in this powerful, unrefutable, historical fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he explains it in all the scriptures why this must be. And these disciples go back and tell the other disciples Ah, but they pick up their nets again, because the others did not believe them. This is what picking up your nets looks like. We pick up our nets, God why did you not answer my prayer, I've had enough now. God why the pain and suffering? God I'm leaving the church, have you seen the type of people that it fills? Nets everywhere. But we're being taught by Christ to lay down our nets. And when we leave here this afternoon, this afternoon at some point, you'll pick up your nets (laughs) and Jesus just says, put them down. We put our nets down when we repent, when we forgive, when we love, when we get nothing in return, and we pick our nets up when we accuse and snipe and turn on each other. But we're called to put the damn nets down. Why? Because Jesus does not want you tangled up in your nets. The nets of sin that will hold you. And keep you down. And Jesus is not about down. He's about up. He's about rising. He's about life. So many points we must lay down our nets. And this is when we learn to do this over time. The practice of the presence of God. We become more effective missionaries for Christ. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Some of you will already be thinking about what your nets could be. We all have lots of overlapping comparisons and similarities here. But some of us, well, we all have our uniquenesses as well. Practice the presence of God and ask him, Lord, what are the nets that I keep picking up? What are the nets that are hindering me and slowing me down and dragging me down? What are the nets that are causing me not to be able to repent or to return back to you? They might be things like old sins, habits, idols, hurts, even wounds. It is anything that keeps us from delighting ourselves in God. You can't delight yourself in God whilst carrying massive fishing nets. And so in this way, we learn what Christianity is. It's not a transactional religion, it's a relational one. It's not necessarily to a code, it's to a person, a person who of the Trinity came to us, walked along our Sea of Galilee, calls us to put down our nets, to lay them down Because God does not want merely a contract with us, but a covenant. And by the way, this reminds me that Jeff, um, our speaker at our church weekend away, is going to be sharing with us why Christianity is not a contract religion, but a covenant religion. Because God is a faithful covenant keeping God. He is faithful. And he takes us From self-serving to self-giving, from death to life, from slavery to freedom. Now, most of us, I'm going to finish with this, most of us are Christian here, I would imagine. What kinds of nets are you still holding on to? What are the nets that you habitually keep picking up? What are your nets? You go back to it again and again. What is it? Pray, ask God. At Joan's Thanksgiving service on Friday, the scripture that I read out at the end that Joan had chosen was, ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock. You will be heard you will be found. The door will be opened. But what are the nets that you're holding on to and habitually picking up? If you're not Christian here today, good grief. Firstly, why not? I mean, give me a break. It's the most truest, powerful story in the history of the universe. God made the universe and became a man and died for your sins and my sins because we wouldn't put our nets down. So if you're not a Christian here today, why? (laughs) It's so obvious to me, but I would say that because I'm just the preacher, right? Secondly, what are you waiting for? And thirdly, just put down your nets. Listen to what Jesus Christ says and follow him. That's it. Everything else is church hats and I don't know, nice clothes. Do you like my new shirt by the way? Because I want to assure you that our monuments of sin, our sin is monumental (laughs) because it took God on a cross to get rid of our sin. Our sin is monumental, but God's monument of mercy is so much greater. God's monument of mercy is cross shaped, an empty tomb shaped for you not to keep carrying your nets. He is the God who walks by the shore of our life as we struggle with our nets and simply says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I, I was—I'd never heard of the book that that you brought to the children, Janet, earlier. But I'm going to read up one of the—I got a quote from it, and it's one of the ones that you read out. If someone says, "Why should I become a Christian? Why should I follow Christ? Why?" What's in it for me? Well, firstly, that's the wrong type of question, but actually what's in it for you is the treasures of heaven, the heart of God, your father, the mercy of Christ, the power that raised him from the dead will be in you. That's what's in it for you. Oh, and the forgiveness of sins. But in the boy and the mole and the fox and the horse, I love it. Do you remember this one? So you know all about me. I'm not sure who says this, is it the horse? The boy, yeah. So you know all about me, says the boy. Yes, says the horse. The boy says, and you still love me? And the horse says, I love you all the more. Jesus loves you all the more. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds. Okay. Praise God. Right. I'm going to conclude with a poem prayer that is on the YouTube channel of our church, well it's on the church YouTube channel. I put it together in a, small vi- in a short video and I'm going to read it out as we go through it, but do check it out later if you want to. So creator God, peace giver, peacemaker, peace setter. You gift us with belonging spaces, habitable spaces, gathering spaces. And when we look for the walls, for the wire, for the defenses that protect our self-interest, we find that like the temple curtain, they are torn down, rubbled, cut through. When we survey the uncontrollable landscape of our lives and of your world, We see your life bursting through in unexpected, beautiful, beckoning ways. Give us the eyes to see Jesus, ultimate spaciousness, who gathers all things, all people, walking just ahead, hand held out, saying, follow,